0: and gentlemen, my name is Leonard Leo and I serve as Executive Vice President of the Federalist Society. On behalf of the directors, officers and management of the Federalist Society, it is a privilege for me to welcome you this morning to our 2006 National Convention. For the next three days, we embark on a journey that will explore a variety of fascinating and important issues of constitutional law and legal policy, how these issues are ultimately resolved by courts and political institutions will have far-reaching impact on the lives of many, many Americans. We have Stephen G. Calabresi, the Federalist Society's national co-chairman, to thank for developing this year's plenary sessions around the theme limited government. And we are grateful to our practice group leaders for their creative spark and energies in developing 25 sessions with more than 125 speakers on cutting-edge... Legal topics. Professor Calabresi was a bit of a prophet when he hatched the idea of focusing our attention on limited government this year. Here is an excerpt from the following, uh, from the polling company's election night survey of actual voters. "Quote: By a margin of nearly three to one, Americans vote for small government, even if it means fewer services." When given a choice between a larger federal government that provided more services and charged higher taxes and a small federal government that provided fewer services and charged lower taxes, Americans indicated a clear des- desire to downsize. In fact, 62% of voters preferred the smaller government. By comparison, just 22% opted for the more expansive government." Close quote. There are many important questions to address, however. What are the constitutional limits and how are they enforced? What role can courts or perhaps political mechanisms such as the line item veto or initiatives play in policing limits on government power? Where do we trim the sails or not trim them? Are there tensions between limited government and a foreign affairs policy that seeks to spread democracy abroad? And there is the perennial question of what role government ought to play in inculcating cultural norms through various forms of moral regulation. These and other questions will be in the forefront of our debates this weekend. Before launching into our arsenal of panels, however, we have the tradition of opening the convention with remarks from an accomplished lawyer. This one happens to be a bit younger than our normal stock, but no less distinguished. There are few, if any, who could make the claim that they have argued as many cases before the U.S. Supreme Court As they are years old. (laughs) With 36 years under his belt, U.S. Solicitor General Paul Clement is just four shy of the mark, probably on his to do list for the next term of the court. General Clement, we have very much appreciated your friendship over the years as a private practitioner. As a legal counsel on Capitol Hill, as a Supreme Court law clerk to Justice Scalia, who we're honoring later today, as a Harvard law student, and now as the United States' leading advocate in the federal courts. Thank you very much, General Clement, for joining us this morning, and please, all of you, uh, join me in welcoming the Solicitor General of the United States, Paul Clement.
1: Well thank you very much Leonard for the uh, kind introduction uh, and good morning and welcome to to all of you to the convention this year. Uh, It's great to see so many people up at this hour willing to discuss limited government uh, when most people haven't even had their morning cup of coffee. Uh, As a veteran of many national conventions I can also say that I think one of the great things about the opening day of the national convention is to sort of watch the group grow over the course of the day as more flights come in from out of town As some of the day students from the Washington, D.C. law firms finish up that last project before they can come over to the Mayflower, it's great to watch the group grow. And today it will grow to the point where uh, by this evening uh, the group is going to fill one of the largest ballrooms in Washington, D.C. So I think that's an amazing thing uh, to watch and behold. I'm very happy to be here this morning. And uh, Leonard asked me a while ago to give some remarks this morning and to try to tie them in to the convention's theme this year of limited government. Now, I realize that for some of you, uh, having the guy who argued McConnell against FEC and the race case involving federal regulation of medical marijuana, having that person talk about limited government might be a bit rich. Uh, and, and I'm willing to admit that there's little question that because of my day job, that job being to defend the constitutionality of federal statutes and the legalities of exercises of federal authority by federal agencies, I and many of the other lawyers in the Department of Justice, by necessity, are many times not exactly advocating the position of limited government. Nonetheless, I think it's important that even lawyers who are duty-bound to defend the federal government can attempt to do so in a way that is sensitive to the limits on federal power and in a way that's respectful of the responsibilities of state and local government and the rights of the citizenry. And let me try to point to three examples of situations in which I think DOJ lawyers in general and lawyers from the Office of the Solicitor General in particular are in a position to promote principles of limited government. First, there is the possibility of urging interpretations of federal law that are respectful of the independent prerogatives and responsibilities of the states. And a clear, if somewhat obscure example of this is a case from a few years ago that may have flown under many of your radar screens, but is one of my personal favorites. It's a case called RAGOR against the University of Minnesota Board of Regents. Now, at the risk of talking about civil procedure before 10 a.m., let let me set the stage for this case and remind you about the federal supplemental jurisdiction statute. Now, when one incident gives rise to both federal and state claims coming out of the same incident or occurrence, uh, the statute provides that both claims, the federal claims and the state claims can be brought in federal court together. But it also provides that if the federal claims are quickly dismissed as being frivolous or for some other reason, then at that point the case can be dismissed so that the state claims can go forward in the courts they belong in, in the state court system. There's one fly, potential fly in the ointment in this arrangement of dismissing the, uh, the case and letting it proceed in state court at that point in the proceeding. And that is what can happen is that the state claims that were timely when filed as part of a pending action in federal court, at the time they're dismissed, if they were to be refiled in state court, they might be untimely at that point. It might be too late for them to file. The federal statute provides for this by giving the plaintiff in that case an extra 30 days to file in state court, and as long as the claims were originally timely when filed in federal court, they are deemed timely in state court. Now, so far, so good. But what happens when the defendant is not an ordinary corporation, but is the state itself, an entity of the state, an arm of the state? The statute of limitations for suing a state government isn't just like any ordinary statute of limitations. It's a a limitation or a limit on the state's own waiver of its sovereign immunity. So obviously the issue becomes much more sensitive, and a federal law that purports to modify the terms of a state's own waiver of its sovereign immunity in its own state court system is quite another matter than a simple 30-day extension in a case involving a private corporation. Nonetheless, the federal statute by terms applied to any action, and the Minnesota Supreme Court, not surprisingly, found that the statute was unconstitutional as applied to a case where the defendant in federal court was an arm of the state, the Board of Regents of the University of Minnesota. So what to do for the federal lawyers when the case comes into our office? An act of Congress, after all, has been struck down as unconstitutional and the general obligation of lawyers in the department is to make arguments in defense of the constitutionalities of act of congress. Well, what we did is we urged the court to adopt a clear statement rule and argued that the reference to any action should not be held to mean every and any action, but rather should be applied in a sensitive way along the lines of the Gregory V. Ashcroft clear statement rule not to cover a suit against a state entity like the University of Minnesota. Under such a rule, we could defend the constitutionality of an act of Congress by arguing that it didn't even apply in this particularly constitutionally sensitive area where the rights of states were involved. I'm happy to say that the court accepted the argument 6-3 to three and held the statute constitutional but inapplicable in the context of the state defendant. Two years later, the office confronted a very similar situation with a federal statute that purported to preempt state laws preventing, quote, any entity from providing telecommunication services. And then what do you do when that law is applied to a state law that basically bans any entities within the state government from being in the business of providing telecommunication service? Again, What would normally be a fairly unproblematic federal law becomes, in the context of trying to preempt state laws about how the state is going to organize its own internal government, become quite another matter and raise sensitive Tenth Amendment uh, and and other issues in its application in that context. And so a federal court had struck down the statute as applied to a, a state law of that nature, regulating the state's own operations. Again, we faced the same basic dilemma. This time around, though, we did have one major advantage. We could cite the Regor case as favorable precedent for the notion that a statute that purports to apply to any entity would not necessarily apply to a state entity in a situation that raises difficult Tenth Amendment issues. Again, we made the same argument, and this time I'm happy to report that the federal government's position, which was sensitive to the role of state governments, prevailed in the Supreme Court by the vote of 8 to 1. In a related vein, in a series of cases, the administration has consistently taken the position that federal statutes that impose conditions on state and local governments as part of federal government spending programs, so-called spending clause legislation, should be interpreted narrowly in light of contract principles. The court has picked up on this suggestion in the context of interpreting statutes like the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, and so the court has limited the availabilities of attorney's fees and punitive damages against state and local fund recipients, again, at the urging of the federal government as amicus or as an intervener in these cases. As a second example, I'd like to make the pretty obvious point that there are times when the federal government can best serve the interests of limited government, not by what it says in court, but by what it chooses not to say in court. And a case in point was the federal government's decision not to file an amicus brief on behalf of the city in the Kilo against City of New London case. As most of you know, Kilo involved the question of whether the takings clause, which states, quote, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation, precludes states from using their eminent domain authority or localities to use their eminent domain authority to take private property from one person to allow it to be used by another person in order to promote economic development. Now, I know some would have liked the federal government to file on behalf of the property owners in this case, but generally the federal government does not file an amicus brief just to urge a position that we think is legally correct. Rather, we usually seek to vindicate an interest of the United States in an amicus brief which is generally a governmental interest of the federal government. And for better or worse, I have to admit, the federal government is a taker of property, not a (laughs) takeee. More to the point, although the federal government did not engage in any comparable use of the federal eminent domain authority, There were some federal economic development grants that funded state and local efforts to engage in this kind of taking, so there was a certain awkwardness and a certain natural interest of the federal government to support the city. And so the pressing question was whether the federal government should file a brief in support of the city or sit this case out. Ultimately, we decided to sit this one out, and that decision, too, I think served principles of limited government before I leave the subject of the Kelo case, which I think is a fascinating decision, let me make one brief comment about the aftermath of that decision. In a group like this, I am sure we could have a healthy debate over whether Kelo is correctly decided as a matter of constitutional law. Although I suspect that a majority of this group, and indeed a majority of almost any group given the public reaction to the decision, might favor the view of the dissenters in the case, Justice O'Connor's dissent. I also suspect that there might be a few people here who would wonder whether the courts are institutionally well-situated to make judgments about what is and is not a, quote, public use, and would have their doubts about whether judicially manageable standards could be uh, provided in this particular area. But whether you think Kelo is rightly decided or an abomination, I think the reaction to that decision has been truly remarkable. The decision has fostered not so much economic development as democracy. And the reaction is a great reminder that when courts decide not to constitutionalize an issue, the democratic process remains available to fill the gap. No less a source than yesterday's edition of the New York Times puts it 34 the number of states that have passed laws limiting the eminent domain authority of state and local governments in the wake of Kelo. The approaches adopted range from a flat prohibition on economic development as a valid public use for purposes of state law or state constitutional law, to prohibitions subject to a number of exceptions, or to simply procedural matters that require certain heightened vote requirements before this kind of use can be made of the eminent domain authority. All of the approaches that were adopted by the people in these democratic processes fostered limited government to one degree or another. And in contrast to a single federal constitutional standard, the differing approaches allow states to adapt the limitations to the local conditions in the area. Legislative approaches also have the advantage of being able to draw distinctions between, say, the use of the eminent domain authority to build a new Walmart and the use of the eminent domain authority to build a new stadium. Now, that's not the kind of distinction that a federal constitutional standard could easily accommodate. And as someone who's spent a lot more time in baseball stadiums over the years than at Walmarts, I have to say I sort of welcome that flexibility. Third, the federal government is sometimes in a position to serve principles of limited government by defending its discretion not to regulate in a particular area. A particularly prominent example of this is the so-called greenhouse gases case that will be argued just the week after next in the Supreme Court. I say the so-called greenhouse gases case because the case actually presents a very serious standing question which may prevent the court from even getting to the merits in the case. But if the court gets past the standing issue, it will then have to address the question of whether the EPA has the authority to regulate greenhouse gases under the Clean Air Act and, assuming that authority exists, whether or not the EPA could refrain from regulating in order to continue to study the issue rather than regulate. This suit uh, involves a rather remarkable attempt by Massachusetts and 11 other states in the District of Columbia to effectively force the EPA to regulate more in this area. As a result, although the Office of the Solicitor General is often in the position of defending exercises of regulatory authority, in this case, it is the decision not to regulate by the federal government that is under attack. And this is not the first occasion in which our office has been called upon to defend a decision of the federal government to stay out of a regulatory area and refrain from regulation. Just two terms ago, the office successfully defended the authority of the FCC not to regulate high-speed cable Internet access in the Brand X case. There is one final area I should mention where the office plays an important role in seeking to enforce the principles of limited government, and that is in pressing arguments in the courts that certain issues are not proper subject for intervention by the courts. The courts themselves, after all, are part of the government that the Constitution limits. This can take the form of arguments about standing, as in the greenhouse gases case, or arguments about the court's limited role in, for example, superintending secret agreements, such as in the Tenet against Doe case a couple of terms ago, which was the last separation of powers' opinion written by Chief Justice Rehnquist, in which a unanimous court reaffirmed the rule of the Totten case. And, of course, this issue of the proper roles of the courts is front and center in many of the cases involving the war on terror. Let me close my remarks just by stating the obvious. The theme of this convention is incredibly timely. With two new justices on the court and a number of important cases on the horizon that involve both the limits on the role of the federal government vis-à-vis the state and also the proper role among the three branches of the federal government, the court in the next couple of years is going to have numerous opportunities to address and refine the notion of what a limited government means under our Constitution. With that, I think I have a couple of minutes left to take a couple of questions, if there are some. I'd be happy to do so. Uh,
2: General Clements, uh, uh, I'd like to begin by, I guess, by asking, challenging the premise which you began with, which is that the Solicitor General shouldn't represent its own views or the president's views or, of limited government if these disagree with the uh, statute. After all, the separation of powers, you might think, is an important element of protecting limited government. It is only the case when uh, the Congress, the president, and the courts all agree that something can be constitutionally imposed on individuals or on the states uh, that uh, we, uh, we, should, we should allow that to be remitted. And if that's the case, that would advance limited government if the Solicitor General came out systematically against statutes if that was the case uh, and allowed Congress uh, to defend them. And that would, over time, give us greater protections uh, against the government. I understand that's against the precedent of the office, but I'm wondering, as a matter of first principles of limited and constitutional government, whether that practice is sound. Well, it's a a very fair question. And one thing I would would say in response
1: to it, though, is that, I mean, this issue may be a live one when it comes to uh, challenges to federal legislation where there's no intervening action by the executive branch. And so there are certain contexts in which we get asked to defend acts of Congress where the federal government, the executive branch, has done nothing to enforce them. And in that context, I suppose one could adopt a different model. Where instead of the Solicitor General making arguments that he thinks are good faith arguments in defense of the constitutionality of statutes, he instead would simply just make a straight-up call, we'll defend it if we if we think it's constitutional, we won't if we don't. And I think one could could certainly defend that model. I think it has the rather you know frightening prospect of having Congress up in the Supreme Court rather often. Uh, but but let me say one thing which I think is an important caveat to this, which is that I think In this regard, I think it's important to remember that the Solicitor General's Office and the Justice Department uh, shouldn't have to do all the work in the executive branch um, in terms of fostering limited government. And I actually think one principle that serves limited government is actually to respect not only the separation of powers among the branches, but also to respect a certain notion of the internal separation of powers. And that is to say, the, the lawyers at the Justice Department are just that, they're lawyers. And although they may be more sensitive than most to the issues of federalism and limited government, uh, lawyers don't have any kind of monopoly on those sensitivities or concerns. And in many cases, we are asked to defend not just an abstract act of Congress that's never been implemented, but a policy decision that's already been taken by a different part of the federal government. And so in that regard, I think that, that really the attention should be directed not just to the Justice Department, but to the agency that's already taken the policy view that may be less sensitive to uh, limited government than would otherwise be the case. And, and the kilo case, I think, is again an example of that because we had a more awkward question than we otherwise would because other agencies and within the federal government were providing funding to state and local governments for eminent domain uses not terribly dissimilar from what was at issue in the case. Now, I'm happy to report that, you know, that I'm not just talking in the abstract here, that we have actually in in this administration tried to take this to heart. And one of the products of the reaction to the Kelo decision was an executive order that has really fostered, I think, a greater awareness within the executive branch that these kind of grants that are given and other federal programs that touch on the eminent domain authority have to be much more sensitive to principles of limited government and the property rights of individuals. So in that sense, I think that uh, the the, the point is well taken, but I do think that the responsibility can't be limited just to the Justice Department, but also has to extend throughout the executive branch.
0: Sir, uh, in in your office, well,
1: let me start by saying in the last 20 years we've seen a, a resurgence of scholarship and academic work in the Ninth Amendment. Um, In your office, do you ever actually talk in terms of, well, the Ninth Amendment should uh, provide some protection for individuals in this area or that area? Do you ever ever talk about it in in your briefs? You know, I can't think of an instance where we've made a Ninth Amendment argument or referenced a Ninth Amendment argument. And I think that, you know, we're at a stage now where I think you're right to say that there's been an increasing amount of academic work in that area and academic interest in this area. And I think, you know, I would think it's probably fair to say, though, that at this point uh, most of the arguments that are probably being made in terms of Ninth Amendment or uh, other, other kind of areas where the court itself really hasn't done much uh, yet in the area and kind of responding to the, uh, the scholarship is probably being done mostly in the amicus briefs that are filed in a particular case as opposed to uh, the briefs that are filed by the government, especially when they're a party to the case. Because I think you know, a Ninth Amendment argument is the kind of argument that could definitely capture the imagination of a justice or two, and perhaps be very helpful in getting the court to to come out one way or another. But at least at this point, it's pretty hard to see that becoming embodied in a majority opinion. And, of course, when you're representing a party before the Supreme Court, you've got to figure out how you're going to get to five. Um, And so for that reason, I think we've probably focused less on that than maybe a couple of the amicus. I I I have in mind, I can't come up with the precise example, but I have in mind a case I worked on recently where one of the uh, amicus in support of the government rather helpfully made a made an argument in the Amicus brief based on the Ninth Amendment and some of this scholarship. We have time for one more question or seeing none? Thank you very much. Enjoy the convention.